All right, Shabbat Shalom. Today we're going to look at Psalm 93. Uh, I'm sorry, Psalm 139. <laughs> I'm a little less dixit. Uh, so we're going to read through the psalm. A couple passages, or one, at least one other back in Exodus, and, um, and just have some things to say about it and uh, go through it. So let's pray. What? 139, Psalm 139. Heavenly Father God, I thank you for this day, for the Shabbat, for your word. Uh, I love the Psalms. I thank you for them, how they just pour forth from the heart of these writers and resonate with my own. <clears throat> and so I just ask that uh, they would be a comfort and an encouragement to us and uh, that you would speak to us through your word today. In Yeshua's name, amen. All right, Psalm 139. Verse 1, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. O Yehovah, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thoughts afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down. Thou art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Yehovah, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thy hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. I say... Surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day, and darkness as the light. Uh, and the darkness and the light are both alike to thee, for thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Then I did see my substance, yet being unperfect in thy book, all my members were written, which in countenance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. <clears throat> Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men. For they speak against me wickedly, and thine enemies do take, uh, take thy name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Yehovah, that hate thee? And am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. So the, what kind of grabbed me when I was reading this was you have the beginning of the psalm that says, O Yehovah, thou hast searched me and known me, thou knowest my downsitting, my rising up. And he basically says that God has you know, known everything about him. And then at the end... You get to verse 23, it says, 
Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So you have the beginning where he says, God already knows everything about him. But then at the end, he says, search me, O God. Because I think, and I know in my own self, there's this somewhat duplicitous nature of our own minds and our hearts and lives where on one end, we know that God knows everything about us, but on the other side of us, our still fleshly nature and mind, we know that our inclination to go, go awry and to go wrong and that we're that pleading of the psalmist to have God know him so that he can be continually led properly because the damnic nature that still resides within us that we battle against and war against the lusts of the flesh uh, still has to be contended with and so we need to be led in the way everlasting, which is the word of God because it's the only thing that is everlasting. So he says, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising and understands my thoughts afar off. So he's stating these things that I believe he's taking comfort in and, and which I do too. And he knows my paths lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. There's not a word in my tongue, but lo, Yehovah, thou knowest it all together. So he knows even the thoughts of our heart and the words of our tongue. Such knowledge, he said, is too, uh, too wonderful. And then he says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? And whither I flee from thy presence? If I ascend wherever I go, you're with me, and darkness shall be light. And so he says, which to me is just so comforting. Mean, anywhere he goes, God's spirit is with him. Because God is spirit, and he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's always with us. And so even when we don't feel like God's with us or, you know, think that we're being uh, led by God or he's always with us and his, his light is always there no matter what the situation is. So we, again, then we, then we get up into verse 13 and it says, thou has possessed my reins and has covered me in my mother's womb. And then he talks about being fearfully, wonderfully made and his substance wrought in the lowest part of the earth and how amazing that is and how incredible God is and how he knows all things. What's interesting to me, though, in verse 13, it says, Thou hast possessed my reins. That word there for reins is the same, um, mostly translated in most other places, kidneys, which I found very interesting. So this idea that God has possessed his reins or his kidneys, it's the idea being the seat of the emotion or the seat of your um, affections. And what's interesting to me is, you, so your kidneys purify your blood, if I'm remembering that correctly. Or your, yeah, they fil yeah, they filter your blood is what they do. Which I find really fascinating because they take all the imperfections out of your blood and the impurities. And so these, it's, it's what cleanses your, your life, could you say that, maybe? And so it's something that God has possessed, and it's where these emotions and seat is. And so he has possessed your kidneys, that which is your emotions and your affections, and purifies your life. And interestingly, in Exodus 29, which I spoke about, uh, not too long ago, where Aaron was anointed as the priest, priest, the high priest, and he was to 
bear the people on his shoulders and in the breastplate and go into the presence of God and represent them. And he placed his hands on that ram. And then what they did, go to verse 20, uh, 29, 13. You don't have to go there if you don't want. But um, So in verse 10, let's back up. Aaron and his sons put their hand on the head of the bullock. And um, they kill it. They put the blood on his finger, on his ear. Uh, oh, no, they don't on that one. Bum, 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 bum. So in verse 13, and thou shalt take all the fat that covereth the inwards, the call, and that is above the liver, and the two kidneys, the fat that's on them, and burn them upon the altar. Then they take the ram, and um, they kill the ram, and they put the blood on it, and they take the fat, and down in verse 22, and the liver and the kidneys, it's a ram of consecration, and they take the bread. And then thou shalt put it in the hands of Aaron and his two sons and shalt wave them for a wave offering before Yehovah. So it's an offering made by fire. So to me, and maybe this is, I get a little too weird on all this stuff, but so you have these kidneys which purify the blood of that animal and the same thing happens for us and it says that God possesses the reins. It's the seat of emotions and that which purifies our life and he is somehow involved in that. And then you have Aaron, which is the high priest that represents the people in before the going into the tabernacle to purify himself because he is picturing a picture of Yeshua taking all the burdens and the sins of the people upon him, and then he takes those before God, just like Yeshua did. He has to place, because he's a human and unclean, his hands on this animal. They confess everything over it, then they take the kidneys, that which purifies the blood of that animal, and that gets offered up unto God. And so I think there's these physical properties to it that I just find really, really cool. And um, let's go back to Psalm 139, where we were. Um, and, then, and, and so I just find that really neat. And he just talks about how he is fearfully and wonderfully made and all that God has done to... Uh, Make him. Um, it's just incredible. 16, thine eyes did see my substance yet being imperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in count, uh, continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! 19, surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men. I wonder if that's, uh, because this is the King James, if that's where the word bloody came from in England, you know? I, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, exactly. It's like, if you're saying you're a bloody man, it's like saying you're a wicked person, you know? You're that bloody something, it's, you know, it'd be a very kind of derogatory term, especially in a biblical concept, because England at the time was bathed in the Bible and the Word. So, for they speak, verse 20, against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. So these enemies of God, they speak against him wickedly, and they take his name in vain. It doesn't mean they're walking around saying, oh my God. To take someone's name in vain or to take God's name in vain means to take his authority in vain. It's to operate as though you're a God-fearing and operate as though you're a believer 
and say one thing and confess all these things to say, oh yeah, I believe in God, but then to conduct your life not in accordance in his word. And so you are dragging God's name through the mud. You're taking his name. It is vain that you carry God's authority and you say you represent him. It's a vain thing, meaning it's worthless because you are not accurately, properly uh, representing him. And so they take his name in vain. Verse 21, do not I hate them, O Yehovah, that hate thee. I love that. You know, because that's not PC these days. We're supposed to love everybody. And I believe that you can still love the wicked, but we have to define love properly. So we have defined love by the world's terms, of which means to be accepting of everything and whatever, and to not... Uh, say anything disparaging about anyone and whatever they do in their life, no matter how wicked and corrupt it is. Love today has become a meaningless term that means anything goes, basically. Whereas we need to define love biblically, and, and, and there's qualifiers to that. And so he says, Do not I hate them, O Yehovah, that hate thee. Am I... Am uh, and am not I grieved that with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. So why wouldn't they be, you know, the enemies of God, why wouldn't they be the psalmist's enemies? He, you know, God is his king. God is his master. God is his savior. He's everything to him in his life. Like he just said, he knows who and what he is. So his enemy, the enemies of God are his enemies, and he hates them with a perfect hatred. That, in today's terminology, would be an oxymoron, but biblically it is not. Hate is not a bad thing. There are things that should be hated, that should be despised, that are an abomination, and that are an abhorrence, and that is righteous. So you can have a perfect hatred. Perfection means, it means completeness. It means, uh, um, it means completeness, lacking, lacking in, in nothing. And so to have a perfect hatred, it, would, it means to hate that which God hates for the same reason that God hates things, because it goes against his word. And so you can love someone and hate them with a perfect hatred at the same time. Because those two terms, when used biblically, are not at odds with each other because they align with his word. Because to do the loving thing in, in, a, in, a, uh, in a given situation can be to fight the enemies of God. And so the loving thing, if someone is, you know, in David's time attacking Jerusalem, is to fight against them in hopes that they will see they're in the wrong turn, repent, and defect to God's people. You know, the loving thing is to tell people that they're wicked and sinners and abject before God and need to be converted and changed. The loving thing is not what the world does where it says, well, you could stay in your wicked, sinful state, separated from God, going to hell, and we're cool with that. You know, that's wrong. And it, it's not loving because it allows people to continue on in their depraved, wicked state, going to hell. You know, we as God's people are to hate wickedness, hate those who are, are wicked, 
recognize them as, as God and as enemies, and then do the loving thing and to tell them that they are the enemies of God and why, and that they can be converted, that they can leave what they are, they can change, they can be saved. But, you know, we and God, as God's people and in the world have blurred these lines of clarity. You know, God's word gives clarity, it gives distinction, it gives right and wrong, it explains truth, it explains love, it explains hatred. Because of what, what goes on out in the world and, and, and secular, humanistic, pagan thought processes has infiltrated into the, the quote-unquote Bible believers today and has muddied the waters of these things so much so that those who are sitting in the churches or the synagogues or Messianic congregations are not defining their nomenclature and their words by the word of God anymore. They're defining them according to whatever they hear on the radio or TV or Facebook or Instagram. Um, and, and all of that is from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because it only takes a little leaven to level the whole lump. And so we have to be able to define these things. I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. And then he says, as if, you know, you have that all that vigor and that righteous action and statements for God because he loves God, he then turns kind of and still knows that he, I, we are nothing in and of ourselves and that we still need God's help. We still need the washing of his word the inspiration of his spirit to be guided to do what's right and to be light. And so he says, search me, O God, and know my heart and try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So I think it's so important that that is coupled with the previous verses because we're not saying that I hate the wicked with a perfect hatred and they're my enemies, O Yehovah because we're anything so great and righteous. It's because we know our own wicked, depraved state that God has redeemed us out of and that we're trying to continually be changed and converted ourselves and do what's right. And we see the negative effects in the world as well. And so we hate that. We hate it about ourselves. We hate it in the world and what the effects are. And we want to battle against it as we battle against our own wicked inclinations. And so he, these two things are coupled and they're harmonious in the life of believers. So much of biblical Hebraic thought to Western world, and especially today in Babylon, America, it seems so either or because we are so Greek thinking in our mindset, whereas biblically these things are balance each other in this beautiful balance of action and emotion and feelings and thought that the Word of God just lays out so beautifully. And they're not at odds at each other. It takes both sides. It's, it's a balance, like a marriage. So he implores God, and we need to implore God that he would search us, know our hearts, 
and try us in our thoughts and see if there be any wicked way and lead me in the way everlasting, that way to the tree of life that I talked about a couple weeks ago. So that's it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, we have to be born from above. We need a new spirit, a new inclination, a new life within us to, to have and desire these things. Exactly. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father God, I just thank you for your word and the truth of it for this psalm. And even though it's short and sweet, it's just to me it was so powerful and so pertinent and so important and so needed for our people and for the world to see that if we are separated from you and we have not been born again and we do not have your spirit in us, we are, we are separated from you and we are your enemies because we cannot, we cannot follow you except we, we cannot produce the fruit of the works of righteousness unless we have the seed of the truth of your word, of your spirit in us, enabling us to and uh, help us to love as you describe us to in your word and to be truthful, to hate wickedness, to hate it even in our own life and that you would uh, search our hearts, know us and try, see if there are any wicked way and then lead us in the way everlasting. Even though you know all the things about us and you know our rising up and our lying down and our thoughts and, and everything and how we were wrought from the beginning and you knew us even before we were formed, we still need to be led by you, God, because we still are not perfect yet. And so I just ask that you would continually renew our hearts and our minds and lead us in the way everlasting and uh, that we would be complete and balanced in you um, even as our Messiah Yeshua was. And uh, I thank you again for your word and for this wonderful day. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen.